Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, I just do thank you so much for this time and opportunity to come together and open up your word, Lord. I am just humbled by the the privilege to be able to stand here and share with these folks what you've been telling me all week. So, Lord, I just pray that you would take this time. Lord, these are your words, and this this is your story. It's his story, Lord, yours. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that you would take it now and open up our eyes. Lord, speak directly into our hearts. As we just sang, open up our Uh, Open up our eyes, open up our hearts, Lord. Let us receive the word that you have for us today. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. I have to be completely honest with you. Not that I'm not always completely honest. I guess that's not a great way to start anything, but... (laughs) You know, uh, I usually sit down on Saturday night and just kind of go through and, and put everything kind of in order of how I think this should go. And I sat down last night to write down notes. And every time I tried to do it, God just blocked me from doing that. So I honestly, I do not know how this is going to go. I have been uh, praying a lot since last night and all this morning. And, uh, and I'm feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit in this room right now. So I'm excited. I'm just a little bit nervous. <laughs> Um, So Deuteronomy, right? Some of you might think that's a strange choice after we just spent all that time in Galatians where we really talked about how the law wasn't there to make anybody righteous by living through the law. And now we're going right into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, actually, the word means the second law or the retelling of the law. That's the Greek form of the word Deuteronomy means that. And so it's like, well, you know, Jesus, we just talked about how the the law wasn't there to make you righteous. So why are we going to spend all this time talking about a retelling of the law? The Hebrew meaning of Deuteronomy is that. These are the words. In fact, that's the very first first words of the very first verse. These are the words. And I, I just, there's something about that that I love, this idea that, that Moses is saying that these are the words that you need to hear. These were the words that were told to your mothers and fathers. Now these are the words that I'm going to tell you as well. And the other thing that kind of blows my mind, and maybe you don't know this, but um, I didn't know what date we were going to be starting Deuteronomy, right? I didn't know that it was going to fall on a, a family church day, a first Sunday of the month. But here we are. And within this room, we've got two generations at least. We've got parents and we've got children. And maybe we even got grandparents and parents and children. And really what this book is, Deuteronomy, is Moses, right before he dies, he's going to go in and he's going to say, these are the words that were told to your mothers and fathers, the generation before you. See, he's got a group of people now who are at the end of that 40-year journey that the children of Israel had been on that God said was required of them because of reasons that we're going to see later on this morning, that their parents, that first generation has all died, and now it's the next generation that he's saying, these are the words that were told to the generation before you. Now, it's important that you hear these words as well. In fact, what you really need to do is you need to hear these words and learn from the mistakes that your parents made. So if there's any kids in here... You need to learn from the mistakes that your parents made. In fact, many of the Bible teachers I listened to this week said to the kids, go home and talk to your parents and ask them, what 
what are the regrets in your life? What are the things in your life that you regret? So maybe I cannot do those same things. <clears throat> also, Galatians is one of those books, if you recall, that has to do with what? What's the big theme of Galatians? Grace. Grace is, is God's unconditional love poured out on us saying it doesn't matter how you act. I, have, I, I sent my son to die for you on the cross because I love you unconditionally and you need to receive that gift and that is how you go to heaven. Not because you're keeping commandments and laws and rituals and judgments. That's not what is saving you. That's not what's making you righteous. Remember, he went through, Paul reminded them in Galatians that, it was that, that Abraham was considered righteous because he believed God, not because he did stuff. The book of Deuteronomy uses the word love more than any of the other books in the first five books, the, the Pentateuch or the Torah was the Hebrew word, the first five books. It uses the word love more times in Deuteronomy than in any of the other previous four books, historical books. In fact, in Deuteronomy is the first time that the word love is actually applied between God's love for humanity. You can look this up for yourself, and I'd encourage you to do that. Grab a concordance and go back through and look up the word love in the Old Testament in the first five books and see how it's used. It's used in, uh, you should love your God, you should love your God, and you should love your neighbor, and you should love your children and your parents and all that stuff. But in Deuteronomy, it's the first time that it says that God shows and uses the word love in referring to God loving humanity. Seems fitting to me to go from grace, the gospel of grace, Galatians, into this, these are the words. These are the words that show that God loved their parents so much that he did so many incredible things. Now, they rebelled over and over and over again, and God continued to love them unconditionally. This isn't any kind of a problem for me when I go from Galatians and then say, we're going into Deuteronomy, because it, to me, it's not about the law in terms of, if you don't keep the law, then you're bad. This is about, God is saying, these are the words that you need to know, because this will show you just how much I love you. <clears throat> so I'm kind of excited about the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> These are the words. These are not my words, by the way. These are the words of God to the people to the people. So let's just jump in and see what happens. Verse 1, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on the side of the Jordan in the wilderness in the plain opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. All right. A couple things just to get this out of the way. In the Hebrew grammar, what we're going to see is when Moses is saying to this new generation, the ones that have actually survived, he's going to say, I'm going to repeat to you what I told them. But in the Hebrew grammar, it's, he's going to say, you, I told you this, and you did this, and you did that. It doesn't mean that those kids that were kids or not even born at that point did this. It's just the way he retells the story. Do you understand? So when he says, and you said this, and I did this, and you did that, he's saying, this is what your parents did, and this is what I said at the time. Okay, everybody straight on that? All right, excellent. So what he's saying right here, right at the beginning, is this, 
um, Mount Horeb, that's Mount Sinai. You remember where when they came out of Egypt, right? When, when Moses led them out of Egypt, then it was like the 10 plagues. And we went through this, if you were here with us, we went through uh, Exodus. Remember, who, who remembers going through Exodus? Anybody? All right, seven, eight of you are great. Excellent. All right, it's going to be good. <laughs> Well, we went through and we looked at the plagues and then we saw how Moses um, led them out and then remember the Red Sea and then they end up at the base of Mount Sinai and then they're all camped there and, and uh, um, God speaks, calls Moses up and he speaks to everybody. Do you remember that part where actually, I mean, all of us remember like, oh, um, the movie where Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, right? But you remember that actually in Exodus, God spoke all of that to the people first from the mountaintop. It was like fire and thunder, and everybody heard it with their own ears. And then he called Moses up to write it down on tablets or to give it to him on stone tablets, and he brought it down. And of course, you know, that was the whole golden calf debacle and all that rebellion right away, right away. Like God did amazing, miraculous things. And then they didn't hear from him for like 40 days. I mean, literally the mountaintop shook. And then 40 days later, they're like, I don't know if there's, maybe we should make a cow. <laughs> but that's where they're at. They're at the base of Mount Sinai, right? So remember God, if you remember, and this is going to come up over and over again. God said to Abraham, by the way, when they were in the land of Canaan, it's like, Abraham, I'm going to see, look all around you, and beyond what you can even see, I'm going to give all of this to you and to your descendants, and it's going to be my promised land to you. Now, they ended up being out of Canaan. They ended up in Egypt, actually. Remember what caused them to go into Egypt? You guys remember that part? That was in Genesis, okay? Jacob and his family went out into the land, but they ended up coming into Egypt because there was a famine. Remember the whole Joseph and the coat of many colors story? That's all right there, right? So they ended up coming out of Canaan into the land of Egypt, and that's where they were, and then that's where Moses came in and led them all out. So now they're in the area of the Mount of Sinai, which is going to be called the wilderness for a long time here. And God is uh, saying, okay, I'm going to take you from this place, from Mount Sinai. We're going to go into the promised land. And it was an 11-day journey. I let that sink in for a minute. It was 11 days' journey from where they were at the base of Mount Sinai to the border of the promised land where God wanted them to go to. Right? But how long did it take for them to actually get to go in? 40 years. They're, are they just really slow walkers? <laughs> well, what we're going to do today is we're going to review that whole situation because it's right here in the first chapter because we didn't cover numbers. We didn't go through the book of numbers. We went from Exodus, you know, we went into the New Testament. So now we're back here. We're going to actually talk about Deuteronomy. But in numbers, you can see that whole journey. But he's going to retell it. He's going to retell it. That's part of what this book is about. Retell it to this generation that's sitting there before them. So let's, uh, let's talk about that. So in Numbers chapter 13, God brings them to the border of the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, he says. And it's, he says, I've already given it to you. To God, it's a done deal, right? He's just saying, you know what? Maybe at some point it's going to work out. He says, I've already given you this land. You need only to go in and possess it. Now he's going to say here, Moses is going to retell this a little, the story, and he's going to say, 
you all sent guys to me that said, you know what? Before we cross over and go into this land as a mass, as God wants us to, we need to send in some spies to check it out. We need to send in some folks to go in and check out the land to see if it really is how God said it is. That is the craziest question I've ever heard of. Is like, God promised us, the same God that brought like frogs and bugs and, and, and parted the sea and, and delivered us around from one place to the next um, and, and wiped out Pharaoh's army uh, and, and supplied you know, food for us. That same God who has now said, this land is yours and it's wonderful and it's perfect and, and there's really great produce there. That's for real. And um, you, you could go in. That God that said that also maybe we should just go in and check for ourselves, right? Now, if you read chapter 13 of Numbers 11, excuse me, that was way off. If you go into Numbers chapter 13 and read the story there, what you're going to see is it's going to say, God said, send in spies, right? Well, here's the advantage of reading the entire Bible in its, in its whole, because Moses gives us a little deeper insight into what happened here, because you can see, we'll get to this, but I'll read it in verse 22. And every one of you came near me and said, let us send men before us and let's search out the land for us and bring back word to us in which we should, whether we should go up into the cities, which, we shall, which we'll, we'll get to. And, and so Moses in Numbers 13, it says, the Lord said, send in spies. Here, Moses said, you all came to me and said, we need to send in spies. So how do those two reconcile? Here's how. There's, there's, uh, there's something called the perfect will of God, right? But there's also the permissive will of God. The permissive will of God is not his perfect will, but the things that he permits or allows to happen. And so these people come and they say, you know what? We're scared or we're nervous or we're not sure or maybe we don't have as much faith as we thought we did or strong belief. Um, so let's go in and spy out the land. And God allows them to. So if you imagine this conversation, they come to Moses and say, we need to send in spies. Moses says, God, they want to send in spies. And God says, fine, send in spies. I will permit it. Permissive will. Now, what we see oftentimes, though, is the permissive will of God often is to our detriment, isn't it? God will say, that's not the best decision, but I will let you make it. Why? Because I have a God that has granted people to have free will. That's what the, when they choose to accept my son Jesus, then they, they are worshiping me and they love me because they love me and they wanted to, not because I made them do it. So he allows them to make decisions. And in this case, he allowed them to send in spies. Now, they came back with a really good report, but also it was to their detriment, which we're going to look at. Um, sometimes God will allow us to do things that we would like to do, even though he knows it's not going to be the best for us. If you're a parent, you know what this means. You have had a child come to you that wants to do something, and you'll say, I know that's not, that's not the right choice, but I'm going to let you make that, so maybe you'll learn through the experience. Now, my daughter's not here now, so I'm going to tell you this little story. <laughs> my daughter's 16 years old. She's itching to get a job. I'd like her to get a job because she also has a car, and it's all on me financially right now because she doesn't have any money. 
So I would like her to get a job, but we have a friend that she works for during the season who uh, it's a great job and it pays really well. Um, it just isn't happening until you know the next couple of weeks. And so in the meantime, her friends were starting to get jobs at like Chick-fil-A and Kilwins, which is a really nice, very expensive ice cream store down on Fifth Avenue. Well, one of her friends was working there, and so she said, I think I'm gonna apply at Kilwins. And I was like, are you sure you wanna, are you sure you wanna, cause you know, cause you know, our friend is coming back soon and you know, and, and the, the pay is like twice what you're gonna make at Kilwins. Plus, you're gonna have to work these crazy hours because you're like low man on the totem pole and, and are you sure you wanna do, why don't you just wait? It would be better if you just waited for our friend to come back. No, 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 I really wanna, I really wanna apply and work at Kilwins. I really wanna get this job. And I was like, okay. Well, she does end up getting the job. It's making like nine bucks an hour. And she's like working night shifts. Like she's still going to school, you know, and so she's working night shifts and they keep changing the schedule around and she's getting very frustrated and she gets her first check <laughs> and can't understand who FICA is <laughs> and why FICA is getting half of her money. After a couple of weeks, she comes back and she says, you know what, I think I have to quit. And ah, oh, man, let me tell you what. The urge is apparent to be like, I told you so. I told you so. I know what I'm talking about. It's so hard to resist that. They'd be like, oh, okay. She's, All right, yeah, that's probably a good idea. But I, you know, but I, made, I didn't make her, but I strongly encouraged her to you know, give her notice and do it the right way so that she's not burning any bridges. But I knew it wasn't gonna work out for her that way, but I allowed her to do that. It was my permissive will to let her do that. Now, it didn't work out great, but she did gain something from that, right? She did gain an understanding of the, you know, what it means to work for an organization or a, a company like that. And so she'll take that on. The permissive will of God. And you know, I was studying this morning, just, you know, as you do, and uh, I was reading in uh, 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6, I'm just going to summarize for you what's going on. At this point, Solomon is full on building the temple of God, right? At, at, right before him, his father, David, if you remember King David, um, wanted to build a house for God. But he's looking around, and he was like, man, why should I be living in a house when all we've got is this tent for God? Remember the tabernacle? Remember we went through that when we were in Exodus, and God gave them all these really incredible instructions and details about how to build the tabernacle. And so David now, his, he's living in a house, and he's looking out, and he's saying, we really need to build. I should build a house for God. Why should he live in a tent when I'm living in a house? Now, I really do believe that David was kind of looking out around the land and seeing all these other nations that had all these grand temples to their gods and wondering why he didn't have one for his God kind of a thing, right? But here's the thing. God never asked David to build him a house. He never told him to build him a temple. You can, you can search through, and if you come up with something, let me know. But I've looked, and I don't see any place. In fact, what I do see is God coming to David and God coming to David's friend, the prophet Nathan, and saying, all this time I've dwelt in a tent, all this time. I never asked you to build me a house. 
In fact, he comes to David later and he says, no, if he, he, what he says is, I will build my own house through your descendant and it will be uh, an everlasting house. But David somehow interprets that as, okay, my son Solomon will build it then. So he saves up all the plans and he gives them to his son Solomon. And that's where we are in 1 Kings with Solomon is building this temple in chapter 6. And it's very ornate and it's a lot of really great materials and it's, it's cut stone and it's and it's cedar from Lebanon, and then the whole thing is covered with gold, and it's very elaborate. It ends up taking seven years for him to build this temple, but right in the middle of this chapter is verse 11, verses 11, 12, and 13. I'm just going to read this to you, okay? This is in the midst of him building this temple, and it's describing it in Kings, and it says, and then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning this temple which you are building... If you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all of my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. And when I read that this morning, I thought that was very interesting that he says, concerning this temple that you're building, I'd rather you just walk with me and keep my commandments. He doesn't say anything about the temple at all. He says, Keep my commandments. Walk in my ways, and I will always be with you. Doesn't matter if there's a building or not a building. So, but then in the very next verse, verse 2, so Solomon built the temple and finished it. God permitted it. He permitted the temple to be built, but was that really his perfect will? I don't think so. I don't think it was God's perfect will that they actually build this huge building. Here's the crazy part. It took seven years. Now, again, I'm not a Bible number guy. Like, I don't hang things on numbers, but, you know, seven is that number of God, that perfection. You know, after everything was done on the seventh day, God said, it's all perfect just the way we want it, and he rested, right? So seven is often attributed to God and perfection. And he finished the temple in seven years. And maybe that's significant. But what's more significant to me is the very next building he builds in chapter 6 is his own palace. Solomon builds his own house right after he builds the temple of God. And it is four times greater than the temple that he built for God. Four times greater. It took 13 years for him to build his own house. Now, some of you have built houses here in Naples, 14 years? Anyone 13 years? No? Feels like it though, right? Sometimes. It's... 13 years. Now, what struck me just this morning as I was looking at that, because God was like giving me this whole like a numbers thing. He was like, so he, he built a similar house for himself, but then he added to it. It took him much longer. In fact, when you look at that, it was like, oh, it was like seven plus six, right? That's 13, isn't it? Yeah. So it was like, God's perfect number, and then the number of man added right to that, right? So Solomon was like, I'm going to build God's house, and it's going to be amazing. But then I'm going to build my house, and it's going to be even more amazing. It's going to be what God told me, you know, I'm going to borrow, because it was very similar to the, to the temple, very similar, but I'm going to add all my own stuff to it as well. That's the seven and the six. Now, here's the crazy part. You can actually find pictures, not pictures, but, you know, illustrations of the temple, Solomon's temple. There aren't any about Solomon's palace. 
you can't find this because nobody cared about that after it fell down. It was all about the temple. But see, God permitted them to build that temple. I don't think it was his perfect will, but it was his permissive will. God's perfect will for the the children um, in the wilderness here right after Sinai was to go 11 days to the border of the promised land and then to go in and take the land, which he said, I have already given you. And they said, well, not so sure about that. Maybe we should send in some spies. And so the Lord said, okay, I'll permit it. But it was to their detriment. I'm just going to read some here and let's see what happens. Now it came to pass... In the 14th year, the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel concerning, according to all that the Lord had given him and commandments to them. And after he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt in Asheroth, in Edri, on this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, the Lord Our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. By the way, they were at the base of the mountain for about a year. So God said, that's it. That's long enough. We've been here long enough. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains, and in the lowland, and in the south, and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, See, I have set the land before you go in and possess that land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Isaac, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. And so he says at that time, that time, when they've been at the mountain base for about a year, he says, it's time. It's time for you to go. And in fact, he breaks down the size of the land that he's giving to them. It's 300,000 square miles that he is saying, this is my gift to you. Now, incidentally, when they do go in, and you can read through this as you go through the word and find all of the different areas that they actually do go in and take and possess, it's a fraction of the land that he said, a fraction of the land that God said, I've given to you. Oh my goodness, sometimes I wonder what kind of blessings are we missing out on from God because we only take and possess a fraction of what he's promised us because we're afraid. Because we're afraid. Let's be honest. They were afraid. Well, maybe they had good reason, you would say, when the the report comes back and they're like, yes, it's milk and honey, and look at the size of these grapes and, and pomegranates and figs. But there are fortified cities with walls to the heavens, they say, and there are giants and they're mighty men and they're gonna take our children prisoner and and they're overcome. With fear. Isn't it crazy, really, to think about these guys, um, these spies that go in, they're, they're looking at this land and saying, okay, well, they have walled cities and they've got some armies. And, you know, there's some descendants of the Anakim, which, you know, are really tall and fierce. And, and, uh, and they're more afraid of that than they are trusting that God, who, again, I have to remind you, All of these amazing things that he did to these people that they saw with their own eyes. It wasn't even they were reading it. I mean, we we read it. We read it and we say, wow, God's amazing. They witnessed it. And they're still afraid to go in. 300,000 square miles. 
And I spoke to you, verse 9, at the time, saying, I alone am not able to bear you. This is Moses speaking to them. The Lord your God has multiplied you here uh, today as the stars are in the multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Remember how many people are with Moses? Like he's leading out a lot of people. Like what I estimated, around 3 million people because they had 600,000 men of fighting age 20 to 50 years old. So multiply that times all of their wives and then add the people who weren't yet 20 and who were older than 50 and you've got a lot of people. How long did it take to cross the Red Sea anyway? I mean, in the movie, it seems pretty quick. (laughs) That must have been a big undertaking. But Moses reminds them, remember, he... Remember the, the Hebrew grammar, what I'm talking about is he's talking to this new generation in Deuteronomy, but he's reminding them of what he had said to their parents there. And he said, there's so many of you, I can't bear it alone. And so he's going to say, I'm going I'm to establish a, a, a couple of layers of leadership. And that's what he's talking about right here. Choose wise, in verse 13, choose wise and understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, this thing which you have told us to do is good. And so I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers of your tribe. And then I commanded your judges at the time, saying, hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between man and his brother or the stranger who is with him, and you shall not show partiality in judgment." You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you will bring to me, and I will hear it. And I will command you at that time all the things which you should do. And so, again, he's reminding them, this is just part of what we did. We established a a system of leadership so that it was kind of a trickle down or, or kind of trickle up kind of thing. And he says, judge rightly, do not, and really what he was saying is, don't look at anybody and saying, well, this guy is wealthy and this guy's not, so he's obviously right. He was, because, well, you know, that doesn't happen anymore, right? This guy's one of us, but this guy's a stranger, so this guy that's one of us is obvious us. Rather, he was saying, listen to the facts, give it to God, and God will give you the decision. Boy, we could use that now, couldn't we? We used to kind of think that, I think, as a country. You know, it says on our money, and God we trust. I heard, I heard somebody one time say, and maybe this is still a debate that's going on, we should take that off our money. We should take off our money, and God we trust. God shouldn't be on our money. Think about it. If you took that statement, and God we trust, and then take God out of there, you've got in Nothing we trust. Feels like that. It feels like we have a country right now that says we trust in nothing. But everything we believe is right and true, and it doesn't make any difference because there's no basis for right or wrong, and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I'm going to get letters. (laughs) Anyway. In verse 19, it says, So we departed from Horeb, and we went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. And then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, 
The Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. And the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not, be, do not fear or be discouraged. They get to the border of the very promised land. And Moses says, now go in because God has already given it to you. And every one of you, it says in verse 22, came near and said to me, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and the cities into which we shall come. And they, they kind of disguise their fear and yes, we're ready to go in, but maybe we should send in spies to just scout out the route. Like, should we go down this road or should we go to this city first? What should we do? And so they rationalize their fear. Anybody ever done that? Anyone ever been afraid to take that step um, that maybe God is leading them on? And so instead of actually taking that step, what, they, what, 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 they, <laughs> what we do is we begin to rationalize and say, well, man, this isn't really the best time. Or, you know, if we need to just wait this out and, and um, you know, as soon as this project is finished or as soon as I have this done or as soon as the market's better, then I'll go, then I'll do, then I'll say. I think God would say, but if I told you to go, I've already done it. That's what he says here. So they come and they ask to send in spies. And it says, and it says the plan pleased me well. So I took 12 of the men, one man from each tribe. Now, you can read this too. This is really interesting to me. Now, if you go through, and in, in numbers, it actually says it was this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. It goes through all of their names. And when you go through all their names, they've got these incredible names. I wrote down a couple. They mean things like he that is heard, redeemed, deliverance, God's redemption. These are the names of the guys. That's what their names mean. And then Caleb means dog. <laughs> Caleb means dog. That's if you look it up in a Bible dictionary name, uh, it says dog. And I laughed at that. But then I thought, you know, all of these guys went in with these great names that meant all these really cool things. And they come back completely afraid and discouraged the whole group. Caleb comes in and he comes back and he's like, it's amazing. We should go right now. Look at these grapes. I keep saying the grapes because it says they plucked these big bunches of grapes and brought them back on a stick between them to show them, look what they have there. We shouldn't go. Too scary. But Caleb comes back and he's like, it's amazing. It is just as God said it was. Caleb means dog. Now, what words do you think of when you think of your dog? Loyal, faithful, uh, unconditionally loving, pernicious. Now, I don't know if uh, that might be a stretch. I admit, it might be a stretch to assign these words to his name, but not to his character. Caleb was faithful. He was uh, trusting in God, right? He was loyal. He's the only one, except for Joshua, who came back with that, like, it doesn't matter what the, what the obstacles are. God has given us this land. He said we could go, let's just go. Be a Caleb. Be a dog. <laughs> these other guys, they had these mighty names, and it came to nothing. It actually came to not just nothing, bad. It came to bad. And, and so it says uh, that they departed and went into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkol. That actually just means grapes. 
They came to the Valley of Grapes, and they spied it out. And you know, they were there 40 days. They, they traveled through this land for 40 days. And, and uh, it says, they also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it back down to us, and they brought it back words to words to <laughs> saying, it is a good land which the Lord has give, which the Lord our God is giving us. And it's, uh, it's almost like this. Now, I'm going to say that part, and you guys all cheer. Yay! And then I'm going to say the next part. Um, but we can't go in there because it's dangerous. Okay, so ready? This is how it comes up. They go like, everybody, look at this fruit. The land is amazing that God is giving us. Yay! But we can't go in there. No, oh, I know. <laughs> See, that's what happens. They came in and they said, it is good. It is a good land. <laughs> That's why you come, isn't it really? I mean, come on, let's be fair. <laughs> and it says that uh, it is a good land which the Lord has given us. Nevertheless, you would not, remember, again, he's talking to the people and reminding their children that you would not go out but rebelled against the command of the Lord. You see what their fear caused them to become rebellious. And you complained in your tents, oh my goodness, not just that they become rebellious, but they all, here's another fun exercise for all of us to do. They all went back into their tents and murmured one another. So everybody on the count of three, everyone just murmur. One, two, three. Murmur. And that, <laughs> murmur. <laughs> See, what this says is that they came back and they all went back into their tents and, and, and amongst themselves, they started to they started to gossip among each other and say, I don't know, we shouldn't go in there. I mean, I know that Caleb, Caleb. Do you know what it says in Numbers? That Caleb and Joseph, uh, Joshua came back and they're like, it's amazing. And everyone's like, we should stone those guys. <laughs> That's what it says in Numbers. It says they wanted to stone Caleb and Joshua because they came back with a good report. Well, what we're going to see is these 10 guys came back and it only took 10 guys to completely discourage 3 million people. Ten guys discouraged three million people, and the people murmured in their tents. They went back, and they just started to murmur with each other. And, you know, these ten guys came back, and, and all of their tribe leaders gathered together, and they're like, I don't know, Caleb and Joshua, they want us to go, but we should probably stone them because it's bad. And we, there's giants and all of our children. They keep going back to this, which is ironic. Keep going back to this idea that um, our children and our wives, our children are going to be victims of the people of this land. Hold on to that for a minute. <sighs> Nevertheless, you would not come in. You complained in your tents and said, because, of, because the Lord hates us, this is what they said, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us under the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, the people are greater and taller than we are. The cities are greater and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. That's what they're complaining about. And they come back and they're like, where should we go? God hates us. He's brought us out here from Egypt. They're saying God brought us out of Egypt because he hates us and he wanted us to die in the wilderness, right? Moses is saying God loves you so much that he brought you out of bondage. Because they were in bondage for 400 years. It's not like any of them were like, remember when we weren't in bondage in Egypt and then we were, and how great that before. They didn't know the before part. 
All they knew was bondage and suffering in Egypt. And yet they're sitting here and in numbers, you can read it in more detail. They'll be like, I wish we could just go back to Egypt. At least we knew there'd be food there and water and, and, um, and, and uh, I'm so disgusted with them and myself because every time I read that, I think they are fools. And then God says, <clears throat> and I think you clearly cannot be talking about me, God, because I never doubt I never long to go back to what I had before. The Bible says, you know, that as a dog returns to his vomit, <laughs> that's us. And so they're murmuring and they're discouraged and they don't want to go. And it only took these 10 guys to discourage three men. By the way, just be careful of your words. Be careful of your words. How easy it is for you to discourage someone or many someones just by a discouraging word. Then it says in 29, then I said, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. What a beautiful picture that is. In all the way that you went until you came to this place. Moses reminds them, remember a year ago, when you were in bondage and the Lord brought you out and not only brought you out, but he protected you and he provided for you. Um, he gave you everything you needed within this year. You didn't need anything. You know, when you needed water, Moses struck the rock and water gushed out and it gave water to everybody. Remember that, Moses says, remember. Yet for all that, you did not believe the word of the Lord and who went in the way before you to search out the place you've pitched your tents to show you the way you go in the fire by night and the cloud by day. I remember part of this, Moses knows that. Um, remember, Moses, he's retelling the story, but he's speaking to a new generation at the end of that 40-year process. And so in Moses' mind, he's saying, do you all not realize also that even though, and we're going to see, you, your fathers and your mothers, they weren't allowed to go in because God did not permit them to go. He permitted their uh, wanting to send in spies, but when they came back and they said, no, we shouldn't go in, God said, all right, you, I'll give you exactly what you want. You won't go in. Remember, they were afraid that their children would be taken prisoners. Well, actually, what he says is, everybody now of this people who are 20 years or older, you won't go in, but your children will. It's not ironic because they were like, we can't go in because our children will be taken prisoner. And God says, all right, I'll just wait until all I have is your children, and then I'll send them in. All right? Ah, let's see. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men or this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children I am giving the land in which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. Caleb was faithful and loyal and he believed God, and God said, he and his family, they will go in. 
In fact, he also says Joshua will go. And Joshua was the other spy that Moses sent in that came back with Caleb and said, yes, it's amazing. We need to go. All right? And that is one of the amazing pictures of the Bible, by the way, of being, people being led into the promised land. Like, we're going to see also that Moses didn't get to lead the people in also, did he? Everybody, we know that story. He, he, uh, the people were complaining once again that they didn't have any water. And he and his brother Aaron went in before God, and he said, God, they're complaining again that they don't have water. And so God says, Moses, take your staff that's in your hand and go and speak to the rock. And from it will, will come flow, flowing living water for them. And Moses goes out and he says, because you are stiff-necked people who are always complaining, here, have your water. And he strikes the rock two times, two times. Now, God, in his graciousness, allows the water to come out and give everybody water. But then he goes, <clears throat> uh, Moses, come here a minute. It says, in uh, the end of Numbers, it says that uh, he spoke to Moses and he said, because you, you didn't represent me correctly to the people and you struck the rock, you can't go in. You cannot go in. And there's a wonderful picture, actually, there of God saying, it isn't the law that leads you to the promised land, but it is Joshua who does it. So Caleb, loyal, faithful, great guy who goes in believing God, but Joshua is the one that takes over for Moses and leads the people. And you know, Joshua is Jesus. Not just that he's a picture of, that's his name. Jesus' name, that's Greek. It is Joshua, Hoshua, Yeshua, pick one. That's who Jesus is. And so there's this wonderful picture that's broader than just that example that says, it isn't the law that leads you into the promised land. And we looked at that in Galatians. There's another connection, by the way. But that it is Jesus who will lead you into the promised land. Amen. And, and by the way, only Jesus. And so there's a wonderful picture. But he says, he says here, um, none of you all, except Caleb and Joshua, are going to be able to go into the promised land, and not Moses also. Now, you know what? I've always interpreted Moses when he got that news and been like, what? Is that really fair? I mean, yeah, I lost my temper, and I can't go in. But honestly, I think when God said, Moses, you're not going, he's like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you. I don't have to spend another day with these people. Uh, thank you, Lord. And God in his graciousness says, you know what, Moses? Uh, that was a bad thing. You misrepresented me. You don't have to go with them. I, that's just my own interpretation. I mean, don't base your salvation on that or anything. Don't create some kind of weird message about that. Here's the other thing that's really cool. God says, okay, you guys are going gonna, gonna to wander around. That 11-day journey, it should have taken you 11 days. Now you're going to wander around until you're all dead. And it's much more graphic at numbers. It says, till your carcasses are laying alongside the road. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that could seem really harsh, right? Because maybe the people are looking like, um, really, God, that's, that, that's kind of a harsh message. Like all this, this whole thing that you brought us out of Egypt for the very purpose to go in, now we can't go because we didn't have enough faith to believe that it was as you said. And God says, that's right. But do you know what he does? because he's so loving and so compassionate, and this is what we see here, he still protected them. He still provided for them. You know that, that whole, every single morning for 40 years, he provided manna for them every single morning. 
When they needed meat, he sent them meat. When they needed water, they gave them water. Do you know it says that for 40 years, they just kind of walked around like this? Their sandals never wore out. I got to get me a pair of those sandals. God, even though he was like, look, I'm not going to allow you to go in because you did not exercise the kind of uh, belief and understanding in me that, that you know, that you witnessed with your own eyes, you can't go in. But I still love you so much. I still love you so much that I'm still going to provide for you every single day. I'm still going to protect you. I am going to guide you with fire. I'm going to guide you with, with a pillar of, of cloud so that I will never leave you, but you can't go in. Boy, am I thankful for that. Right? The Bible says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Thank you, Lord, because I am so like these people. Is that, is that just me? At one point, Jan's going to be back, and I'm going to say, Jan and me. Anybody else? Thank you. I'm so thankful for this book because it reminds me that, you know, we are flawed and we get afraid, and, and God sometimes permits things that uh, are going to work out to our detriment later. But he says, but I'm never going to leave you. Now, uh, we're, except Caleb. So, uh, Verse 37, the Lord was angry. Oh, Joshua, the son of Nun. That's the other one, verse 38. Who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall be, they shall be in there. To them I, I give it, and they shall possess it. But as you turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea... Then, uh, and then you answered and said to me, we have sinned against the Lord and we will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when, and when, and when every one of you and had girded up his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And so this is what happened. Moses said, God just told me that none of you get to go in. Now you have to wander around for 40 years. And they're like, oh man, wait, 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 wait. We'll go up and fight. We'll go up and fight and we'll go in right now. So as soon as they were faced with consequences for their actions, for their decisions, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We'll go in. Another Marin story. When she was little, she's going to love this. When she was little and she was disobedient, you know, she would get a swat, right? She knew it was coming. So we were like, when, when Deirdre would say, Marin, come here. And she realized that she'd be like, mommy, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, mommy. And she became like a master negotiator right in that moment because she realized there was a consequence to her choice that she was trying to get out of. And so they're like, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, we'll, we'll go up and we'll go up and fight. And then God, God says, tell them not to do that. See, that's what it says. God says, don't go up and fight because I will not be with you. But guess what they do? They go anyway. They're just like, no, it's too good to pass. No, we're sorry, we're going to go, we're going to... They, they gird up and they get their stuff and their shields and whatever they have, and they go into battle and they get beat. Because God was like, don't go, don't go, you are on your own, I'm not going with you. And they went anyway, and they get, they get a smackdown. And so I spoke to you yet, and would, you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord, and presumptuously went up into the mountains, and the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do. What'd that look like, really? I mean, you're like going up as an army, and here come the Amorites, and you're like, ah! 
You're running around because they're all over the place, like bees. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give you ear. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days you spent there. And so that's where we're going to end today because it just goes on and it, uh, it retells some of the story. And he's going to go into the retelling of the law now to the people that are sitting there. And here's the important thing, right? He's going to go back through and he's going to remind them of God's commandments and judgments and things. And I don't want you to get confused because that's part of the idea of like, well, what a, you know, Deuteronomy, we were just in Galatians and not talking about the law. And why did God give them the law at all then? Why did God give them the law? Why did God say, here are my commandments and here are some other judgments and statutes that I want you to follow? Why would he do that? Well, we know because we've just gone through it. It wasn't so that they would be more righteous before him. Moses was considered righteous before any of this was. So why did God give it to them? Well, a couple of reasons, I think. One of them is that he had, God had just taken them out of Egypt, a pagan, polytheistic nation worshiping many gods. He was sending them into a land. By the way, Canaan wasn't uninhabited. It was habited by other nations that were polytheistic also. And he was saying, I'm giving you these things so that you can look different, so that you can act different, so that you can live rightly. Not be righteous, but live rightly. He was saying, you're not going to be like them because you're going to follow these things. And you're not going to be like them because you're going to follow these things. To us, when we read through the Ten Commandments, they all make sense to us. Don't they really? Uh, even in our culture, they make sense. But then it was very different. It was a very different thing where he was saying, you shouldn't have any other God except for me. Only me. Starts right off with that. Well, that's important to realize. To us, we're thinking, of course. But Egypt had thousands of gods. Canaan, those nations had thousands of gods. It was a, 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 they had a history of one God, but they had allowed the influences of all these other gods to get in as well. I know that's true because as you continue to read through First and Second Kings, you realize the kingdoms, the kings that are put into place one after another, have all kinds of issues with altars on high places where they worshipped other gods. They just had so much trouble getting that out of their system. That's to us, seems natural. To them, it was a new thing. And God says, you want to do these things so that you can live rightly. I'm going to read you something. <laughs> Maybe. Um, oh, no, here it is. I came across this also when I was um, studying this week. It's also in 1 Kings. Um, it's chapter 2, verse 3. This is when, when, when David is dying. He's literally almost ready to die. He's handing over his throne to Solomon. And he says this is in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it was written in the law of Moses. And here's why. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, there have been some people who have taken that English translation and said, well, if we follow God's law, then we should all be rich. I wish. <laughs> but that's not what that means. In Hebrew, that word prosper means very literally act intelligently. 
That's the Hebrew right there. That's what that verse says. So it says, so literally, David is saying to his son, keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies as they are written in the law of Moses, so that you may act intelligently in everything that you do and wherever you turn, so that you can live rightly. Now, it became something different because uh, of their sin, sick condition of their heart, looked for any little thing that they could find to say, I'm a little bit better than you are because I keep this many and you only keep this many. We still do that. We still do it. We have a sin sick heart that is looking for even the littlest thing that I could say, well, I'm, I'm better than that guy. I'm, I'm not pointing at you, Steve. Yes, you <laughs> <laughs> and see, God doesn't operate that way. God knows you and you and you and you, and he looks at you as an individual, and he says, live rightly based on these things. Do not measure yourself against somebody else. It means nothing to me. That's why he gave them the law, and that's why Moses is going to remind them. These are the words so that you will live different from where you were, different from where you're going, so that you will live rightly. These are the words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just wow, I thank you so much. That was all right. God, thank you. Lord, I thank you for this time and for your word, uh, for this group that have uh, come together, this family who comes together to, to listen and to learn and to love you, Lord. Thank you for reminding us, uh, a far-removed generation from who Moses is talking to, but Lord, still your children. Lord, help us to overcome our fear, to exercise our faith. Lord, help us to never forget that you are there and what, what you've done, not just for them, but what you've done for us. Lord, please don't let our fear get in the way of knowing that you are with us. Lord, I pray that we would have a desire to be in your perfect will rather than to be those who are looking for your permissive will, Lord. And Lord, because we know it, often and almost always ends up in our detriment, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for sending your Son to lead us into the promised land. I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know that, doesn't know Jesus, isn't following him into the promised land because that is the only way to get there, Lord. I pray, Lord, that their hearts would be pricked today. Lord, that they would find me or somebody here and say, I don't know what Pastor Aaron is talking about, but I want to know. Lord, please, please, they're here. If they're here, if they're online, Lord, please cause them to call or write us, Lord, to reach out, to come if they can to this place. They will hear your word. Speak directly to them now, Lord. Jesus, we thank you.